turning your Bibles to Psalm 95. We are jumping back to Psalm 95 today because the next passage in Hebrews is Psalm 95, verses uh, 7b through 11. So we want to go back and get the context of that as we study. Um, and as we have uh, discussed when we started this, this study through Hebrews, there are passages in the book of Hebrews that are dependent on you understanding the Old Testament. This is one of them. It's one of those passages where we really need to grasp uh, some basic and yet profound things from the Psalms that will be uh, edifying, uplifting for us, and also explanatory for us as we read the warning that comes in Hebrews. So let's go to Psalm 95, and we'll read together the word of the Lord. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. And in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in as at Meribah on the day when on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. I mentioned earlier that uh, for a long time, Christians dominated the art world. That has changed. I don't know why. I, I don't have a historical point to point at where uh, the secular world took over the art industry or, or where... Art production suddenly became flighty and, and distant, although you could trace, uh, the, um, you could trace the presence of abstract art with Kandinsky and some of the others that have come along and Warhol and their, um, works of social commentary through abstract art and even into Jack, Jackson Pollock. You could trace all those things and yet you would still be at a miss, at a, at a, you'd still be remiss to find the place where Christianity stopped engaging in the art world. Um, and by stopped, I, I don't mean ended. There are indeed great Christian works still being produced, but for some reason we don't we no longer dominate that world, which is tragic, because we have the most beautiful subject matter that the world can't touch. 
we have the most profound subject matter that the world can't reach. And we are told in the Gospels to give that subject matter to the world by any means that we have at our disposal. So, let that first opening thought be a conviction to you that if you have any propensity to create in any way, you ought to look for ways to create for the Lord. You ought to look for ways to produce artwork that would encourage God, that would encourage people to see the gospel, that would bring joy to the heart of the Father of all, the creator of all things, the God whom we worship. Whether it be song, poetry, talking, uh, building, working, doing things with your hands or your mind, whatever it is, we ought to pursue it all with a view to glorifying God with who we are and with what we have. So, as we approach this psalm, one of the things that I want to remind you of is that the beginning of chapter 3 of Hebrews started with, Consider Jesus. Gaze upon it. Gaze upon Jesus Christ. That worship would overflow from that gazing upon the Lord. So, let's dive right in to dissecting this psalm, which is the next warning in the book of Hebrews. Are you ready? Are you sure? No, you're not. <laughs> oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Uh, all throughout the Psalms, by the way, this is an invitation is given. Come, let us sing to the Lord. If you don't like to sing, the Bible's response is too bad. That's basically it. You don't get another option. He doesn't say, those of you who don't like to sing, stand off to the side. He says, come, let us sing to the Lord. There's something about song making music with your mouth that delights God and that represents the expression of the heart of believers. There's something about it. Something about singing. I can't explain it. I don't know why. C.S. Lewis believed that God sang creation into existence. And in that uh, great book, it was The Last Battle. He Is it The Last Battle? Which one is it? Okay, The Magician's Nephew, it's in The Magician's Nephew, there you go, my kid corrected me on literature, fantastic, she's six, um, the, in The Magician's Nephew, she has this picture of creation, seven, sorry, I just got corrected on age two, so she, the, the narrator sees Aslan walking into Narnia and creating Narnia, and the way he does it is with this magnificent song, and C.S. Lewis seems to propose that perhaps that's the way God created the heavens and the earth, that there was this melodious, melodious singing coming from Him that created and that things sprang to life in song. And indeed, there's something to that, that when we sing, we feel the creative life and power of God as we sing together. It's part of the reason that we work so hard at this church to pick songs that matter. Songs that mean something, that sing about who God is and His nature and character. But it seems as though 
the Bible seems to call us together into this singing together, this invitation to worship. And don't be afraid if you're not a good singer because he establishes what he means by singing in the very next line. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. He does not expect you to sound great. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That it is not the quality of what we produce to praise the Lord, but it is rather that we are producing something in praise to the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to know that God receives your singing as a child is received by a parent when they've done something. Here's what I mean. When my child was little, they stood up and took a step, and I lost it. I went crazy. I was like, and I ran around the room, and I jumped up and down, and I was super excited. They took two steps and fell over. There is absolutely nothing impressive about me taking two steps and then falling over. I'm a grown man. I ought to be able to take two steps and keep walking. But my child, who has never walked a day in their life, takes two steps, and I cheer and exalt for joy. My kids will bring me pictures that they have drawn. And don't get me wrong, I love my children. I love their pictures. They are good artists. They will bring them to me, and they will hold them up, and they'll say, Daddy, look at this. And I'll say, oh, that's so beautiful. What is it? And they'll go, it's you. And I'll go, oh, thank you. That's wonderful. And I am genuinely excited and happy to have the artwork because they made something, because they did something. I want you to understand God feels that way towards your singing, towards your joyful noises. You can't, you can't compare to his ability to sing. He created music. And yet, you are invited to sing praise to God. Come, let us sing to Yahweh, the Lord. To the Lord, let us make a joyful noise. Singing is the way that mankind was designed to respond to God. And I don't know why God chose song. I I don't know why He didn't choose working with your hands, though there are other places in Scripture that say that you should use your skills and your, your craftsmanship to His glory and to His name. I don't know why it's repeated so often to sing. But it is. And I just want to pose this question. Could it be that singing will bring you more in tune with God? Could it be that singing, especially corporate singing, would bring you more in tune with God and His mind and His heart? As if He designed it that way. Just a question to ponder. Could that be true? It says, make a joyful noise. 
to the rock of our salvation. So the first singing is in response to salvation. First we see, we make a joyful noise to Yahweh, to the Lord. That's what it, the, the, that's the proper name of God, the Tetragrammaton. Uh, we pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, whenever you see Lord in all caps in the Bible, that's called, um, it's, it's the Hebrew word Hayah, but it's moved to be a present tense, kind of active. It means I be or I am. Hebrew lesson over. That's, that's that word. So Yahweh, Jehovah, both acceptable pronunciations for that word. It just depends on whether you're Eastern or Western educated, uh, German, German educated or, or English educated. All that doesn't matter. So just know that that's the proper name of God. He gives it to Moses in the Old Testament. We write it Lord because no one knows how to pronounce it because the Hebrews considered it so sacred they didn't put vowel markings around it except that they took the vowel markings of another word, Adonai, my Lord, and stuck it on top of Yahweh. So uh, that's what we have. A lot of people even think it's breathing mark. I can go on for that for hours. If you want to hear more about the Tetragrammaton, ask me at lunch. It'll be great. Um, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So first, the first thing that we sing for, the reason we sing, is that we are saved. The foundation upon which I sing and from which I sing from, is that I am saved. The Lord God has saved and rescued me. So we sing, and how do we sing? With joy. It's a joyful noise. So if you're following along on your paper, first point, joy, right there, singing with joy. That's the choir, singing joy. Got it? Good. Okay. Nobody got it? Everybody got it. Okay. Joy. Good. Second, verse 2. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. So we first sing, we make a joyful noise with joy to God for salvation. He's the rock of our salvation, the foundation upon which I am saved. And then we come into His presence. The second invitation here is, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving or gratitude. Let us come with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Thanksgiving for what? For salvation. For the ability to overcome our past wickedness. For the ability to overcome our current wickedness. For the ability to overcome our future wickedness. Because Jesus has overcome those for us. For salvation. For Salvation. We are grateful for salvation. It's one. Second, we are grateful for the ability to come before God. Come into His presence with thanksgiving. And why should you have thanksgiving? Because without Him making a way of salvation, you would not be able to go into His presence. You would not be able to know God. There was one person in the Old Testament who could go before God one time a year. The high priest. He got to walk into that room one time a year and make atonement for the people on the Day of Atonement. One time out of the year. And he had to live a ridiculously disciplined life all year to do it. Or he would die at the hand of God. This was very 
serious. There was one man who could go up the mountain and talk to God and come back down with the Ten Commandments. It was Moses. Archetype for Christ. A type for Christ. One guy could go before God one time a year throughout the Old Testament. One person. And yet now, Jesus Christ in His death on the cross tore the veil from the Holy of Holies, allowing you and I to go before God, to go before the Creator of the universe, to stand before Him. First Peter, it says, we stand in front of Him. We stand before God. Because of what Christ has done. Oh, come, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving because we are able to. Believer, remember where you came from. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. The invitation here at the beginning is obvious. The invitation is to come sing to God. Why? Because He saved you. Because He saved us. Because He made a way for us to get to Him. You sing to Him. You produce material for Him. You love Him. You lay things at His feet. You, you, you paint, draw, build, cook. Whatever it is you do. You bring praise to God as an expression of salvation, of, of gratitude for salvation. And we come together in gratefulness. Remember where you came from and to where you are called to go. And then he gives you the reason why here in verses 3 through 5. He says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. First, why? Why sing? Why make a noise? Why express praise? The first step, He is God. And he's not just God. He's a great God. He's a great God. So great is this God that when we explain him to non-believers, he is too good to be true. When we explain that we were wretched and shook our face in God's, shook our fist in God's face and told him no and we rejected him with all that we were and he came and died in our place, taking the punishment for sin, and rescuing us, and then didn't stop there, but rose again, that we would rise again to have new life. And He made us His, saving us by His grace and His power. When we explain that to people, and then we go, and, and He's so kind and loving as to not leave us alone, but to walk with us every step of the way, to indwell us with His Holy Spirit, that we would have His life inside us. When we explain that to people, it's insane. The creator of the universe cares about the gnat, the ant. And yet, it's true. He is a great God. So why make noise? Why sing? Why express praise? One, He is a great God. Worthy, good, steadfast, faithful, loving, kind, generous. All those. Second, He is a great King above all gods. He is the king over all things. He overcomes and supersedes every idol made by man. 
So why do we come before the Lord with gratitude? Because He is great. He is a great King. He is a King over all gods. Now this is not, I want to be clear, this is not an acceptance that other gods actually are real. They're not. This is a recognition that we put other things in God's place. That we, by nature, make idols. And God is king over all things. He's king over the things we put in His place. He is king over all things. He's above everything. Third, look at Look there at verse 4. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his and he made it. For he made it and his hands formed the dry land. So third, he is active even in the depths of the earth. Think about that for a minute. That which we don't see but we have to stand on. The depths of the earth. That which we can't see, but which shakes beneath our feet. That which we can't see, He is active in. His hands are there, working. That which we do not see, which lays beneath our feet, He stills the sea, and even in death, encompasses us. Because what happens when we die? We're put back into the depths of the earth. We're put into the depths of the earth. And where are His hands? The depths of the earth. So, his hands are actively involved even in our position of death. Fourth, the heights of the mountain are also his. All the glorious reality that you see, all the glorious truth, all the splendor of creation, that's all his. He owns it. He owns the mountains. He owns everything. All that glorious reality that's beyond our reach, that obvious truth that holds up the heavens, He owns it. There is nothing that is seen that is not God's. The depths of the earth, that which is unseen is His. The the heights of the mountain are His. Everything is His. It's all His. He owns it. Then we have the sea here. Verse 5. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. You've got this beautiful creation picture of the sea, the land, the mountains, the depths of the earth. You've got all these pictures. And he doesn't end the picture until he gets to what you're standing on, the, the dry land. But imagine the painting that's being painted here. Just for a moment, picture it. You've got the depths of the earth, and so you've got this image of there's nothingness underneath the earth. We don't know what it is, but God's hands are actively involved there. Then you've got the mountains, which God made and holds up the sky. And then beyond the mountains, you've got the sea, that great unknown in Scripture. The sea is this picture of that which is unknown and terrifying all throughout the Bible. It's where the Leviathan comes in and out of at will. And terrifies us. It's where we don't know what's going to happen. It's this 
terrifying reality that we can't control and we can do our best to hope to ride on top of it until we reach dry land again. The sea. This great unknown. This terrifying reality. Look at what it says. To God, it is known. It is known. There's no more sea in Revelation. There's a floor that looks as a crystal sea, but there's no more sea. There's no more unknown. God takes away that terrifying unknown and replaces it with the river of life, which is Him. God knows all And there is nothing beyond His hand. Nothing beyond His glory or His presence. There is nothing that God does not know. The word sea is is the Hebrew word yam. 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 One of those. It's old language. But it's very closely related to the word yom. Which is the word for day. This idea that God has control over the sea is a similar idea to the idea that God has control over every day. That the days are numbered and they're not out of His hand. That that which is unknown and that which is terrifying to us is controlled and held by His hand. There is nothing out of His hand. There is nothing beyond His grasp or His reach. There is no plan that has been made that will surprise Him. He is not taken off guard. Oh, Take heart in that. He is not taken off guard by you. God is not in heaven going, I can't believe you just did that. No, He's not taken off guard by you. Indeed, He engages with you and He knows every step before you take it. And He's walking with you and He's calling you to walk in holiness. Come with me. Come with me. Come with me. Lord, I'm going to mess it up. I know. Come with me. Come with me. Lord, I'm going to make mistakes. I know. Come with me. Lord, I sinned against you. I know. Come with me. Come with me. Come with me. And He beckons you. Come into my presence with thanksgiving and song because I am good God and I own everything. All of this is mine. Then he gives us the second invocation here in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Worship is to give all. Surrender. Bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So kneel before God. And why? Because He's our Maker. Kneel before God who has made us. We bow down before God because it is right. Because He's the Maker and we're creation. Let us come and bow down before our Maker. Let us kneel before Him. Let us surrender before the Lord. Bow down to Creator. Remember Romans 1 when the people bow down to created images rather than the Creator. Remember what happens. Remember what happens. God removes His restraining hand. There's an object lesson there for us in that God does not have to convince us to do evil. 
Indeed, he restrains evil constantly. All he has to do for evil to thrive is remove his hand. So we see in the book of Romans, chapter uh, 1, verses 18 through the end of that chapter, that he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. He just lets them go. Let's them go. It's one of the most tragic and depressing passages of Scripture to read, and every time you read it, you should really quickly jump over to chapter 3, verse 21, and be reminded that Jesus Christ came and redeemed and rescued you from that. God, the maker of all things, it is right that you bow down before the maker before the Creator, that you surrender to Him. Because all things were made by Him and for Him. And nothing that has been made was made without Him. Indeed, He created all things. John chapter 1. And in Him is life. So, verse Six, we kneel down before our Creator, and again He gives you the why. For He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. That's interesting. The Hebrew just took a turn. You see, at the beginning, it's God created everything, and He gives you this ancient Near Eastern picture of world, right? You've got the mountains that hold up the sky, Truth on which life is firm, that truth which you can see, holds up the heavens, making things in the sky understandable, the mountains, and you've got the dry land that we stand on, you've got the unknown to which we return, that you, that dirt that's underneath us, the depths of the earth, which it doesn't terrify us because we're on top of it, and yet we know that eventually we'll go back into it. And then you've got the unknown sea surrounding all that. So he gives you this ancient Near Eastern picture of creation and all of a sudden you should be thrown into this philosophical worldview of realizing what's going on. So you've got this ancient Near Eastern picture of things. And then he says, let us kneel before our maker. You'd expect him to go back over that. But instead, he suddenly takes a turn and goes, oh yeah, he's a shepherd. And you're his sheep. You're his people of his pasture. You're the sheep of his hand. Anybody else think that sounds a little weird? Don't sheep go with pastures and people go with hands? Right, it's a little strange. There's there's a purpose here. He wants you to understand you're his people and he gives you all the provision that you have. He handles everything for you. Every single breath you breathe is guided out because He is walking along with you. Because He's walking alongside you. And you're the sheep of His hand. Not His staff. Not His rod. Immediately, your mind should go, He's petting the sheep. He's tenderly picking them up. He's carrying them on His shoulders. When they're hurt, he's protecting them with his own hand. What a great and wonderful God that we serve. 
this good shepherd who loves us with his hands and takes care of us. So we've got these, these invocations. Sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Come before the Lord with thanksgiving. And then here again, surrender. Bow down before him. Because it's right. But not just because it's right. Because he, he's worthy of it. He's worthy of this. He's God in heaven and he has deemed it necessary and worthy for him to come down and join you here. He is worthy for you to bow down because He walks with you. He holds you. He guides you. He leads you. And not with a rod, but with His hand. And He brings you into pasture. He rescues you. This is beautiful, beautiful picture. And then we have the warning, which we'll look at closer in two weeks. We're going to read through it today and make a few comments. Verse 7b. Today, if you hear his voice, note the pause. If you hear his voice, if God is speaking today, now, if you hear his voice, Understand the gravity of that phrase. That's not a phrase that's said lightly. The if you hear his voice is not a, not a simple, oh, you know, we got good music playing, walk forward, dunk in some water. That's not what this is. This is today, if you have seen something of who God is, if you hear his voice, this should be said with trembling. If you have heard the voice of the Lord, you should take a deep breath. If you have heard His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof Though they had seen my work. This is, so this is a reference directly to Exodus uh, chapter 17 when they break water from the rock. The people of God who have just been led out of Egypt. Do you remember how they're led out of Egypt? Nile turns to blood. The plagues come. Frogs, gnats, flies, boils, darkness over the whole land except where they live. Darkness everywhere except where they live. Fire from the sky kills half of the livestock. <coughs> this is insane. Then they're led out into the wilderness. And get this, when they're led out, there's a giant pillar of fire and a giant pillar of smoke leading them. Put yourself in their shoes. You're running. You leave Egypt wealthier than when you were there. You've got more servants, more money, more stuff than you had when you were there. You're surrounded by your kinsmen. And for the first time in your life, you don't have to go 
You don't have to go serve the Egyptian slave owners and be whipped. And you come to a Red Sea, come to some sea in front of you, and the army is coming behind you, and you go, oh no, Moses, we're going to die. And Moses says, all you have to do is be silent. And he stands up on a rock and does this, and the sea parts, and you go through on dry ground. And then he comes across and puts his arms down, and the army is swallowed up in the sea. Then Miriam gathers all the women and they sing songs to the Lord. And they lead the people of Israel in worship. They have sacrifices. Everything goes great. And then two chapters later, they're in the wilderness. God, at this point, is giving them bread from heaven. They don't have to work. They're waking up in the morning and finding piles of bread outside their tents. They're told not to store it. Pick up this stuff and eat it. It's called mana, which means whatever it is. That's what that means in Hebrew. Whatever it is. And they picked it up and ate it, and it was evidently sweet and tasted awesome like honey cake. They come to chapter 17, and they're walking in the wilderness. They have had every need met, and they go, Oh, that we were back in Egypt where we had fish and food and meat and drink at our whim. And they cry out against the Lord God who has provided everything for them. And God breaks the rock to provide them water. Moses is told to strike the rock strikes the rock, and it provides water. This symbol of Jesus Christ, by the way, being broken for our sins, being broken to give us the water of life. God says, they tested me there. Do not harden your heart like they did. Don't do it. Don't harden your heart like they did back then. They tested me there. They demanded proof. Gave it. And it tested me. This is a good God. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't send a plague this time. Oh, he does. At times. He's not tame. He's not a cuddly teddy bear. He's God. And there are times that demand plagues. But at this moment, he gives them water from a source where they would never have been able to get it. A rock. He gives them water from a rock. Verse 10. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. God is incredibly honest about the way he felt. I was tired of them. They, they complained about everything. I loathed them. They were no fun. They were not, not a delight to God's heart. Not a joy. And he said, I loathe that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the warning that we're going to look at in two weeks here. This warning. And remember, I want to remind you, the warnings in Hebrews are supposed to make you uncomfortable. They're not supposed to be theologically explained away. 
They're not supposed to be uh, relieved. They're supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. And this one, as we approach it, ought to. Because the first half of this psalm is a praise to the glory and name and worship of God. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the first thing we're told to do is consider Jesus. Gaze upon Him. So, by application, I wonder, how well are you doing at gazing upon Jesus? How well are you doing at the first half of this song? Just rest in the reality that God still struck the rock and gave them water. That God still led them through the wilderness. That God still was present with them at every step of the way. Even though they deserved nothing, God gave them life over and over and over. If you read through Exodus, He gives them water from a, 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 there's a lake and He tells them throw a stick in the lake this particular stick, throw it in the lake and it will purify the water and they get drinking water. They say, Lord, we're hungry. He drops bread from the sky. They say, we want water. He strikes a rock and water comes out of it. They say, we want meat. And he gives them so much meat that it comes out their nose. That's the way that it's described. It just means that there was so much they got sick. God provides over and over and over for them. Indeed, he does the same thing for us. This is a patient and loving God. Does it not turn your heart to want to praise Him all the more? It does mine. It does mine. 